Hello, everyone. Um, we have a great guest with us this evening, but uh, as usual, we've got to let uh, a little bit of, of, of time go by here so that um, we can get everyone in the room and, and participate here. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. We have a, a tremendous guest with us this evening. Uh, Dr. Laura Cavanaugh is with us, and oh my gosh, I, I, I met Laura in uh, Arizona this past winter at the uh, the Green Cover Seed uh, Regenerative, um, I think it's called Nexus now, I think it's what the, the new name of it is called, but um, it's a it's a great event, and I got to meet Laura there. And she's a fascinating lady, and we're going to uh, we're going to hear all about what she's done in the past and and where she's headed in the future. And she's a she's a big she's a big part of this regenerative movement that we're on. So um, as usual, I'll do my usual thing. Giddy up, let's go. Laura, how you doing this evening? Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here, and I, I'm thinking right. that you're probably. A happy man tonight because i understand you're getting some rain we got some rain laura we've got some fields that haven't had any rain in eight weeks so uh it's dry uh but yet but you know what the crops have held on pretty good and uh yes very thankful and very blessed to have rain so thank you for that thanks you're welcome so laura i'm gonna ask you the same question i ask everyone to get the this webinar started uh, what is on your mind right now? So you might be surprised to hear this, but Japanese beetle is on my mind. Ah, Japanese tell me beetle. More. Um, so I'm working at a seedless muscadine vineyard in North Carolina. We're a new vineyard, and the Japanese beetle this year are just like the plague, and mm. we have been trying to prepare for them and applying all kinds of regenerative farming practices to manage them. And we thought we had them under somewhat of control in the last couple of days. We had um, like six days of solid rain and we couldn't really get out and that, that ended and they just popped up like, like the plague. And yeah. um, it's such a, uh, Horrible, sickening feeling when you walk out in your vineyard and you shake, shake a vine and they just go flying yeah. out. So and they're hungry too. They're hungry and they are ravenous. Yeah. And uh, so that is, uh, I guess, part of the regenerative farming journey is sometimes things hit you that despite your best efforts, you have not been able to keep under control. Yeah. Um, but that's what's cool about regenerative farming. Everyone talks and shares, and we, I would say, lost the battle. I, we aren't going to lose the war, but we have to regroup and find some new solutions. Uh, been doing a lot of work to get the bricks levels of our vineyard up, of the vines, yeah. so that we could keep those evil, well, I won't call them evil, keep the Japanese beetle away. Um, but we definitely need some some uh, rethinking. So I'm hoping even maybe through this podcast, I could 
could connect with some people who have some good yeah. ideas. Well, well, um, Laura, would would you would you entertain spraying a product that is like like safe to bees and safe to to uh, beneficials? Oh I mean, yes, yes, um, okay. we definitely and we we have done that. And the challenge we found with that is they're just they're right back. Hmm. I mean they they you can uh, get you know get them for the hour that you go and spray. And you go spray another block and you come back and they're just, they're back. I don't, yeah. it just seems like there's so many of them. Um, well, so. if, there's, if there's anyone out there listening tonight that, that has experienced this or something similar, doesn't have to be a Japanese beetle, but um, the concept here to maybe help uh, eradicate and at least slow down uh, their their appetite for destroying this vineyard if anyone's out there please please put something in the chat and even if uh you know rachel's on board with us here tonight and um it might even be a situation where uh if if you've really got something good to bring bring to the discussion uh raise your hand and and she could unmute you and then we could just discuss it so sometimes when you got you know lengthy lengthy discussions it's better to talk it out than to go back and forth with uh texting or typing right. so well and i can i can tell the listeners we've you know we're uh been listening a lot to dr dykstra's um talk about mm -hmm. managing insects on the pyramid and um so i'm familiar with those things so yeah if you've got some other ideas we um Absolutely, because we're also looking at, you know, like milky spore is something you could start to treat the field with. So you're trying to attack them in all phases of their um, life, but these little boogers have gotten us uh, over a barrel at the moment. Yeah, uh, Claudia's got a comment. Uh, how you doing, Claudia? She's on every week. She's a devoted listener here. Um, I mean, I don't know how many acres we're talking about here laura but they do have those beetle traps with the pheromones i don't know if you've ever used them but my gosh when you set one out i've done it this at home but we just have a couple of trees that the beetles really like mm -hmm. but they'll just mm -hmm. fly right into these traps i mean they don't even know what's going on. i mean it's just one right. after another have you tried these traps you know we haven't tried the traps and the reason we haven't tried them and maybe this is a not correct thinking, but the pheromones we would attract heard actually bring them in. Yeah. And so we don't want to do that. So we haven't, we were afraid to attract them. Although honestly, the fear is moot because they've obviously found our vineyard and yeah. uh, they're after well, it. Well, what we've done there, I, and I know what you're saying. So sometimes I'll put one in the tree that they just absolutely love because they're, they're there anyway. Right. Exactly. And move one that's off, not off site, but away from this area. And maybe you can draw them to a different spot on the vineyard. Yeah. I, I don't know. But how many acres are you talking about here? Well, so this is a new vineyard. At the moment, um, we have a, a test vineyard that's three acres that has mature vines. And those three acres are what have gotten uh, really hit. We've just planted 15 acres. And our plan is every year for the next several years to plant 60 acres. So yeah. it's going to be growing quickly. Um, yeah. And this is, it's um, an interesting, oh, well, 
was going to say no. this variety, it's a, it's a seedless muscadine. So if you're not from the Southeast, you may not know what a muscadine grape is, but if you're from the Southeast, it's, it's a very familiar grape and it typically traditionally has a thick skin and a big seed. Um, mm -hmm. And people like to put it in their mouth. It's got a, a very um, unique and strong flavor, which is because it has all these polyphenols in it, which are super healthy for you. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a very good to eat kind of grape um, in its traditional form. Uh, but interestingly, um, a person who lives here in uh, Hillsboro, North Carolina, which is where we're located, um, has bred a seedless version. And it's taken them over 40 years to create oh, wow. it. And it's a delicious table grape. It's, it's really wonderful because now the skin's not so thick, that's not the seed, and it's a delicious uh -huh. table grape. So that's what we're looking to grow. Um, and in this vineyard, the test vineyard, uh, we have the traditionals and we have some, um, what they're called vinifera grapes. They're what you buy at the grocery store typically as table grapes. So they're very sweet. Um, tasty grape. Um, and then we have all these different crosses of increasing amount of muscadine. The, the traditional muscadine can hold their own against the um, Japanese beetle. But these other species, as you go closer and closer and a higher percentage of vinifera, they just get eaten like crazy. So um, yeah, so, yeah. so <laughs> some of the regenerative approaches, making sure you have enough traditional, you know, you're selecting varieties that can have some inherent resistance, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I was just thinking, um, I was just thinking back to the same thing we're doing. I mean, this is what we would call epigenetics. I'm just thinking back to the same thing of what we've done with our soybeans. You know, we've gone back to be legal. We've gone back right. to get varieties that are off patent. Well, sometimes you're missing out on that, that latest and greatest technology that maybe we're losing some health or some vigor there. And maybe that's what's happening here a little bit. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this is um, this is what you might call an unexpected outcome. Yeah, that's right. Your, it's not, your it, you're right. It's, it's not a failure. It's outcome. <laughs> not a failure. Stress. Like I said, we, yeah, we've lost the battle. We just, we're not going to lose the war. We just have to figure it out. Yeah, you will. And and there'll be enough people listening in, maybe not on this live um, webinar that we're doing, but when we replay mm -hmm. this on a podcast, it'll go out to a lot of people. Um, we've got uh, one of my good friends, Mitchell Horizon. Mitchell, how you doing? Uh, he just asked me um, if we had any damage from the, rain, uh, the weather today. Well, Mitchell, we got lucky. We had uh, very minimal damage. Uh, we got anywhere from three quarters of an inch, I think, up towards a little over an inch across the farm. So uh, very welcome drink. Uh, very grateful. Thank, thank, thank the Lord for, for bringing rain our way today. Um, but uh, thanks for thinking of us, Mitchell, and everything's, everything's good here. I hope, I hope you got rain, and I hope you didn't have any storm uh, damage. So, so thanks. Okay, Laura, I want to go back. I mean, when I read through your bio, it's like, holy cow. Let, let's go back. Let, <laughs> uh, first of all, hey, we are, um, we are alumni from the same university here. A little bit of your education is from Purdue. Yes, you went to Purdue. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So um, I graduated from Purdue in 87. 
and um, I was an ag econ major. So I got, and I minored in agronomy and minored in animal science. So um, it, it was a good time. I, I enjoyed Purdue. Um, it, uh, it, it didn't prepare us for what we're doing today, but that's okay. It, uh, it taught us how to think. So bring us from your Purdue days up, uh, and then let's go to let's go to NASA. Okay, that, that just um, blows my mind. Well, I'll first say, Rick, we were on campus at the same time. Oh, really? So, yeah, I was there from eighty-three to eighty-nine. Oh, wow! So who knows? We could have seen each other. We didn't even well, know it back then. Maybe we had uh, Lee Schweitzer together, or. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. What, what 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 was your what was your undergrad at Purdue? Uh, engineering, chemical engineering, chemistry. No, we, we wouldn't have had too many. Wouldn't have had a lot of classes probably together. Did you do Did but, you do biology? I'm sure you did. Which biology? Do you remember the number? Oh, 108, 109 Yeah, I don't. No, you have a better memory than I do, Rick. I yeah. I, I have no idea. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> tell us, tell us about, about what um, you did at Purdue, and then let's move move forward. Okay. Well, I studied engineering at Purdue. I was always a big. Um, I mean, farming was the last. I, I had no in, ideas about being a farmer at that time. I was really interested in the space program. I was a big Star Trek fan. Um, I wanted to work for NASA somehow, but I didn't know how to get there, and. Um, so I was interviewing for jobs when I was getting ready to graduate. And I don't know if, if you remember, but you had to kind of get into this lottery to get uh, interviews with companies because there were more students than companies. And yeah. I was trying to find some company that might have something to do with space. And um, company Rockwell was coming and I tried to get in the interview, but I didn't get selected. And I didn't, I mean, I just knew they made rockets. I didn't know much about them, honestly. You know, you're, you're getting ready to graduate. There's a million things to do. You're rushing around, you're trying to interview. So I wasn't um, the best prepared. But what I decided to do is go ask the interviewer who was um, from Rock, Rockwell uh, to see if I could schedule an interview some other time since oh. their schedule was full. And uh, to my shock and amazement, that he said, sure, let's just go do it now. I just, I met him at the end of the day. I thought he'd be exhausted. That was the last thing I actually thought he would do. Um, wow. But he said, yeah, come on back, which in a way I was great because I got to talk to him. But in another way, since I was completely unprepared, I kind of well, yeah. was, I was shocked and I was a little panicked because I didn't know what I was going to do. So we went back and we started interviewing um, and he was telling me all these things Rockwell did of which there were many, many things. And then he got kind of to the end and he said, do you have any questions? And, and all I could think of to ask was, well, what do you do for Rockwell? And so he said, oh, well, I work at the Johnson Space Center in space shuttle mission control. Ooh. And I was like, what, tell me more about that. And so when he was, you know, we talked about that and he said, and I said, that, that's the job that I want. That's what I want to do. And so things ended up that I ended up doing that. So I worked at the Johnson Space Center as a guidance navigation and control officer um, for over 40 space shuttle missions and oh then did some other things. I know it was, I remember I went to interview and you walk into mission control, like the mission control center. I was, just, I just couldn't even hardly talk. It was, it was so astounding 
Um, well, my I guess if I could interrupt you real quick, my first oh, yeah. thing here, chemical engineering, NASA, I don't quite, I don't see the... Well, so I, yeah, so I was in chemical engineering and at chemistry because I really enjoyed chemistry. I had an awesome teacher, Mr. Rarick, uh, shout out for Mr. Rarick out there at my high school um, chemistry teacher. And he just got me super interested in chemistry. So I thought I'll major in chemical engineering. Well, there, between my senior and junior year, I ended up doing an internship at a company that was doing chemical engineering. And I was like, I don't really think I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a great time to figure that out, right? So <laughs> hey, mom and dad were mom and dad were happy, yeah, right? <laughs> that's way to go, Laura. Um, so I decided to stay and get my master's in mechanical engineering. So I ended up getting a mechanical engineering degree. So that really kind of broadened my opportunities. And yeah. so that's that's how I ended up I got it. Um, landing that job. So that was it. Isn't it amazing though, Laura, the timing? I mean, the you know, being at the campus right then, meeting that guy, his his he he took you but he saw something in you when he first saw you, and that's why he entered, you know, isn't that crazy? It's it's crazy. And and it's funny too, because as I was standing there waiting for him to come out, I was having all these doubts. I was like, he's been interviewing all day. I'm sure he's tired. I'm sure he doesn't want another person. I'm not really that great of a candidate. But all these things that our minds tell us, you know, we're not. Yeah. And I was thinking I should just give this up and I should walk away. And, you know, looking back, it's, I mean, there's several times in my life when I've been in that kind of situation and I decided to stay and my whole life went woo off in a completely different direction. And I think yeah. everyone has those those experiences. Uh, but it was yeah. amazing. It was amazing. And I'm I'm so grateful for him because I think if I had been him, I wouldn't have wanted to do any more <laughs> interviews because he'd been there all day long. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, that's 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 just great. So, um, and, hey, Rachel, I think I inadvertently raised my hand there. Can I? There, there we go. I got it back off. Okay. Um, so, okay, so you've done Purdue. You got interviewed. So then, then did you move right to Rock Rockwell? Then was that your next step? Then. Yes. So they had an interesting arrangement at NASA. They actually had um, contractors sitting in Mission Control, right next to the NASA people. And really, you couldn't tell when the, it, was, it was an unusual new kind of thing they had started doing. So as a Rockwell employee, I actually was sitting in mission control and was oh, actually um, doing the missions. And, you, you know, it's, it's a very stressful job. We did a lot of simulations. And when you have a simulation, everybody sits in mission control and everything looks and feels exactly like a real mission. The consoles are operating. So they have computers simulating everything. And then you start a launch and they'll, there's people who, a whole group, they just put in failures to train the team for failures. So they, they're in the background breaking everything and the shuttle's launching and you're talking and practicing exactly like it's a real mission. It's really stressful, obviously. And you'll just do that over and over. Um, and you can even have really long, simulation sessions that last for 35 hours and you hand over and you do so you want to do it exactly like a real mission and it's um at all hours of the day and night because they're trying to do as many simulations and as much training as possible so it's just yeah it's a stressful job it seems really exciting and it totally is but it's also very demanding and very yeah. 
tiring and very stressful. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's nothing. I just remember once I left after a mission and we had launch and I was walking out in the parking lot and I thought, I can't believe this. I, I just participated in launching a space shuttle. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just kind of, how is this really happening? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, and obviously, they're trying to find every possible thing that could go wrong. And if right. it does go wrong, how are we going to fix it when those guys are that many or those people are that many miles away from home? Right, right. Yeah. And there's big there's big thick books and there's many of them uh, that are called the flight rules. And so what they what we try to do is you sit down and you think of every possible thing that could go wrong and you anticipate it. And then you argue about it, discuss it for weeks, it seems like, and then you decide what you're going to do. If this thing breaks, we're going to uh, end the mission early and come home. If this thing breaks, and there's, I mean, there's just giant books and books, and then you you yeah. memorize what these flight rules are, and they're supposed to help relieve you from trying to make decisions in the moment. Yeah. Uh, so you already know, have default decisions, but, you know, there's a lot to learn, and it's... It's... Yeah, well, I guess that's where the term comes in, you know, smart as a rocket scientist, right? So, uh, I, yeah, I, I guess so. I don't know. I think yeah. farmers are, farmers have to be, I've learned, um, way smarter than a rocket scientist. Oh, yeah. They have to be able to adapt and do all these, the oh, same yeah. things you're talking, and there is no manual. Right. Um, they're doing this. You're exactly right. But, but Laura, think about what you learned there in that experience and then you know you fast forward to what you're doing it's the same thing you're, you're doing you know you're trying to put fires out you're trying to see what right. you know what are these japanese you're right we're, we're gonna we're not losing we're gonna lose this battle but we're not gonna lose the war here it's gonna probably make us stronger so right um right. same type of things yeah and it's it's immensely complex i mean the farming is way more complex than a space shuttle you know, a space shuttle, I can go and look at every single piece of equipment that's on that space shuttle. I can know every piece of software. I can understand a lot. I can understand everything. You can't do that in farming. Uh, um, it's so funny to me because I've been to several conferences. Um, in fact, I was at, at the Regen um, Organic Conference you mentioned, and I'm at dinner with, uh, you know, just participants. We're all having dinner. And I've had farmers tell me this more than one. Um, yeah, I wasn't very good in school, and uh, as soon as I, you know, I wanted to just be, and they'll even say, this is their words, I'm just, I just, I'm just a dumb farmer, and I think, oh my goodness, you have chosen the wrong career if you think you're dumb, because this is the hardest yeah. career there is. There is no system more complicated than farming. Yeah. Absolutely no. Hard yeah, work. I would totally agree with that. Totally agree. Um. Mitchell, uh, Mitchell responded back, no damage there. Great, good to hear. And they got a little over a half inch. So I'm glad a lot of people got uh, yes. the moisture. That that central Iowa into most of Illinois and most of Indiana has been really dry uh, all spring, early summer. And that area got some relief today. So um, it's all it's all good stuff. Okay, so your schooling, I don't think, is done yet, though, right? Um you did some more here. No. Yes. So um, space shuttle program was coming to an end. And I now, needed... why was that? Why was that? That the shuttle program was ending? 
Yeah. Um, so the space shuttle, it was a, actually a technology that was out of date by the time it was coming to an end. I mean, you, you can't just retool a whole space shuttle. You really need a new vehicle. You know, the computer systems oh. that were on the space shuttle were not as powerful by any means as this phone that I have. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, they, they were made and designed, you know, long before the space shuttle actually launched. And now the space shuttle has been running for 20 years. So they're, you know, that's hardware and software that's out of date by 30 or 40 years. Um, so there was, a, there was a major program to try to upgrade the space shuttle to keep it flying, but it just proved to be too complicated. It's, it's just like anything. You can't just take out one part and put a modern part in there and have it work with everything else. Yeah. And it is a really complicated system. So if you just make one little mistake, the whole thing can be lost. Yeah. So it's yeah. really hard to do that kind of thing. And and obviously you went, I'm, well, I'm assuming I got my time right here. You went through the, the, the one launch that ended in, tra in tragedy, right? Is that correct? Were you there? No, actually I was, I came in. So I remember I was at college about to graduate um, when the Challenger blew up. Oh, and I was we in, were, I was at Purdue actually. I was okay. was in the in the student union, and okay. everyone I heard all these noises. And I went in and the TV was showing that. So I joined shortly after that, um, and then I actually left shortly before they lost the second one on entry. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I was obviously heartbroken to see that happen. Oh my, yeah, and you know the when the Challenger went, I got to think, uh, and I don't want to spend a lot. Uh, we need to move on, but I got to think when the Challenger happened, everyone's getting pretty gun shy here. And how can we, how could we even dream of sending another one into space again? But then the other side of the brain is saying, well, now we got to prove to the world that we can succeed yeah, right. and keep moving forward. So, right. yeah. So, yeah, okay. you, never so want I, to end on a, you never want to end on a losing play. No, no. So yeah. I interrupted you on your continuing education. So what's next then? Oh, so I saw this program ending. I thought, well, it's a great experience, but I'm not going to go out and interview for another space shuttle job. There's nothing out there. I need to retool. I need to rethink. So I started taking some classes actually in the evening. To, to explore some areas I might take my career. And um, it was great. Um, you know, I think these community colleges are so amazing. I just want to mention that because they give us so much opportunity to learn things at a very easy way and at cost. Um, so I started taking some classes and I got totally um, pulled into genetics and understanding mm. DNA. And I, I did take some microbiology classes and I was just like, wow, it just blew my brains out how amazing it is. And um, so I ended up deciding to go back to get my PhD and um, my fabulous husband who I met, who also worked at NASA, he worked on the main engine uh, space shuttle, main engines. Um, he was an aerospace engineer and we met while we were working together in the space shuttle. And so um, he was willing to move and we just had our son who was two months old and we packed up the car 
and moved across the country. My mom and dad came and helped us drive the vehicles and our cat and the two dogs and baby. And we drove to um, Durham where I was gonna go to school at Duke and started studying genetics and got my PhD there. And uh, that was quite an adventure because I had another son yes. while I was doing that. And um, my, my husband who had always had a dream to be a coach um, actually started teaching school and became a lacrosse coach here in town. And so, um, so that took six years for me to get my PhD. So that was quite a while. And um, we kind of chose, I chose to come here because there was Research Triangle Park here and I was hoping I could graduate and I'd have to move. It'd be nice to just stay here. And that ended up working out great. So that's when I, uh, right after I graduated, I got a job with Syngenta that's here in Research Triangle Park and doing a lot of research um, for plant um, improvement at their research center. So, Laura, what was the what was the time period here? Like oh six, oh oh five, oh six. No, this this was um, two thousand and eight. Two thousand eight. Okay. Yeah. So I had you know I graduated from Purdue, then I had a career with like thirteen years, and then I went back to Duke, and that yeah. been took six years. So um, this so is two thousand eight. Syngen is, 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 are they thinking about biology at this time, or are they just thinking about changing the genetics of their, their, their seed corn and, and soybeans? Um, they're mostly focused on uh, GMO improvement of, of crops, and they have yeah. a strong European contingent. So there's, you know, corn and soybean, corn is king and soybean is big, but they, are, you know, do a lot of research on vegetables and things um, in in connection with their European colleagues. And we did a lot, we were the, um, so my kind of specialty is in bioinformatics. So that's processing, computer processing of the genetic data. And so we worked with all kinds of clients around you know, the world. Um, they've got offices in India and all over Europe and China. So we worked with a lot of different crops in processing the data that was generated with the sequencing, primarily. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now this is just this is this is going to get really good here in just a little bit because now <laughs> we're we're getting into the. Now I don't want to get into the DNA stuff just quite yet. Now I want to now now when did uh, when did your notion of composting and and you know, you decided how important this was to a regenerative farm. When, when did right. all this come into play? So that's while I was working at Syngenta and doing this, um, I I kept coming to the conclusion that those kind of modifications weren't a permanent solution. They weren't a permanent long-term solution. We can find ways to improve a crop, but um, they do provide value. But it's it's all short term. Nature is going to always overcome whatever thing we put in there. And, and even if you do stacks to try to make it last longer, you know, we would always look and do calculations. We're going to put this gene in that's going to provide this resistance. But we know that in about this much time, nature's going to overcome that. Um, you so know, they, were, the, they were aware of that. They, they knew this. Well, I mean, we all know that, you know, any antibiotic 
nature is going to overcome. We always have to be, yeah. nature is always fighting whatever we put in. Um, and I don't know if those are quite the right words, but yes, I mean, it's absolutely known that yeah. glyphosate, there's going to become glyphosate resistant weeds. I mean, that's a given. Nature's just so powerful and there's billions and billions of weeds out there. Um, we just need one to mutate to overcome that. And then those are going to yeah. be the ones that survive. So, so that's just what my, my thinking was. This is what, well, well, there's some value that comes out of that. Um, it's not, it's not the right long-term solution. It's a five or it's a five or 10 year solution. It's not a 500 year solution. We, we have to yeah. find better ways. This isn't really working, which wasn't a comfortable conclusion to come to because it wasn't really what the company was interested in looking through. And I don't mean to say that in a way like the company, they're not sitting there wringing their hands, like trying to, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they're doing things because that's what, and what I thought also is that this is going to provide a lot of great solutions for people. So um, yeah. I just kind of decided in my mind, really, uh, after I looked at it, it the, the answer is in the soil microbes. I really think the long-term solution and nature's actually worked out this problem. These microbes have been, uh, you know, on this planet for billions of years. There's a, one of my favorite sayings is if you don't like microbes, you're on the wrong planet. And um, some, somebody, that's a quote from somebody, but um, yeah, they've been here for billions of years. They've been interacting with plants for, I think they estimate plants, uh, started 700 million years ago. So all of those microbes have been interacting with plants that whole time. And there isn't anything I don't think a microbe hasn't figured out how to do somewhere on this planet. Yeah. And they've certainly involved an amazing, beautiful, complex interaction with plants. So, you know, I kind of feel like farming is a lot different than a lot of other things like we, we have to start from scratch and create things in farming really we have to have we have to have the wisdom to recognize we're actually walking into an existing beautiful amazing powerful system and yeah. what we need to do is optimize that system for long-term solutions that are going to stay around for a long time so that's how i started getting into um, the ideas of regenerative farming. So it was, it was, you know, it was a long journey. Yeah, you you said that so eloquently, though. I mean, um, we we as farmers have to understand this is a very complex system that's already here, and right. we can't just step in and be arrogant enough to think that we can just do whatever we want. And and, right. and I like the way you know you put this that. You saw that when and 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 you're not trying to say anything bad against Syngenta. No, know I'm not. But but you you realize though that this is not the future. I mean, th this is not going to be a a future that's going to last more than fifteen or twenty years. So, right. Um, that was that was a good that and again another wonderful learning experience for you and that and then so now tell us about your 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 composting now. Yes. Yeah, so. I got super interested in regenerative farming and how soils and microbes interact. And so I was taking um, Elaine Ingham's 
soil food web class online. Yep. Many, many people who are listening to this will have taken that as well. And one point she makes frequently is that commercial compost companies don't make good compost. And you really need to make biocomplete compost. And that's her term, I think, biocomplete. Um, and I just started thinking, well, why aren't they making biocomplete compost? I mean, I mean, that just seems weird. Why wouldn't they be doing that? So um, I started reaching out to the compost company industry on what, what's really happening here. And um, I ended up applying to speak at the compost, the U.S. Compost 2022 conference um, to talk about the fact that you have DNA sequencers now that you could actually use um, pretty easily and pretty fast. And um, like I, I'm doing DNA sequencing at my house with my sequencer, so it's not that hard. So you could use this to really improve compost. And if we can get the compost industry, like elevate the compost industry to see how to make really good compost, that will help the regenerative farmers. And it's just so important. Um, and what I learned from the compost industry, totally awesome people, very committed to improving the environment, all kinds of things, and very interested in improving compost. Their main focus um, from what I can see has been diversion of food waste keep that out of the landfills, which is a hugely important and valuable role. It's, it's a great mm -hmm. thing to be doing. Um, but I think that just kind of like farmers have kind of been farming without necessarily a deep knowledge of the microbes and their important role. Um, I think they just hadn't really been looking in that direction. Um, but they're very interested in it. I, I spoke again at the conference this year and talking more about how they can actually use DNA sequencing to tune compost for farmers. So if you're raising, in my case, grapes, I'd be interested in certain microbes that would be elevated in compost that's tuned for me. And if corn would be the same. And um, so, you know, this is a technology. It's a very win-win situation. They improve, the farmers improve. Uh, we, we do a lot of composting on our farm, but it's a lot of work to pull in all the all the things you need and try to get the community to give you, you know, bring those things in and you have to storm and then you have to, it's, it's very consuming. And if we can yeah. get, you know, a handshake between a really powerful large scale composting industry and the farmers, uh, I think we're diverting all this food and we're uh, just elevating everything. It's, it's a uh, circular economy is the term I've heard. So we have the community at large contributing because they're putting in their food and all their uh, mm -hmm. organic waste. And then we have really awesome ways of composting. It's producing really good high value compost specifically tuned for different crops, potentially. There's many options. Um, and then the farmers are getting something that's really useful for them in producing food or, you know, lawn, a lot of, um, People who do landscaping and all of that, that kind of compost would be really a powerful way to use all of these things and keep things moving forward. Yeah, and, and start reducing on the synthetic inputs. I mean, that's what the whole goal here is, so. Exactly. All right, so, all right, we're gonna have to get a little deeper here now. So, okay, let's, I don't, I don't care what crop, it doesn't matter what crop. 
so so Laura, have you got a uh, have you got a database that that you're collecting this data and and you're you are now you now have identified that uh, we'll pick a crop. I don't care. Pick canola. If you want to maximize the microbial uh, biome for a canola field, do you know what biology needs to be in that canola field? Well, or, or am I looking at this the, the wrong way? No, no. I think you're looking at exactly. That's exactly how I'm looking at it. But I would also say we're we're beginning a journey, and we're in our infancy in that journey because we now see the potential, but we have to bring that to fruition. Um, the way it would start, I you know, there's been researchers who've studied individual crops and they've produced some really nice research about these particular microbes help. Oh. I accidentally hit my mute yeah. <laughs> button in my enthusiasm. Um, so how I would see this potentially working, and these are some things I'm, I'm testing with some collaborators, is let's take that research. And, and this isn't my own original idea. I, I think other people have certainly come up with this idea as well. Um, but let's say I'm trying to help canola growers. I would research what microbes have been shown to be valuable there. And there's yeah. two things. I, I think, and, and I the jury's still out on this, but in my mind, a major important factor in every crop is diversity. So I don't think we want to just have this idea that there's a magic bullet microbe out right. there because microbes function in a community. It's like in a city, um, you can't take the firemen out and stick them in the desert and say they're going to put out fires because they can't even survive in the desert and they need this community around them. So yeah. we need to get not get too focused on exactly just individual microbes, but make sure there's diversity first is what I'm thinking. And then add in these microbes that are specifically good for a specific crop. And then you can use DNA sequencing, say as a composter, it could be on the farm or it could be an industrial composter, but I'm gonna add uh, trichoderma or I'm gonna have these mycorrhizae fungal species in here um, you know, mycorrhizae fungal are going to be good for just about any crop, except maybe brassicas. So just elevating those and then using DNA sequencing to ensure that you put them in there and they actually lived. Those kind of things I think could be really useful. Um, and for the farmer, once they, however, there's many methods to try to get species or diversity in your soil, but are they working? And, and using the DNA sequencing to show, yes, this method actually works, or no, this isn't getting it done, so we need to try a different method. Yeah, you see, yeah, I want to, I want to, we're going to hesitate here for just a moment, because now this is, this is, get, this is where it's important, folks. Um, it's, it's ab absolutely imperative that we collect data. And that's what Laura's talking about here. You've got to collect data. Uh, we've got Mitchell on here tonight. Mitchell's with uh, Continuum Ag. He has a tremendous platform called Topsoil. You have to baseline your farm, baseline your field, whatever it is you're doing here. And we're, we're she, Laura's mentioned this three or four times, DNA sequence, and we're going to get into it here in just a minute. But we got to understand how important it is to collect this data and start right here's ground zero. Okay, and then the next thing, in my opinion, would be to get 
as much information about the biology you can in each particular field that you've got. So now let's show your show your your DNA sequencer now, Laura. Let's see oh, it. Right. So this and look is at this some... thing, folks. You think it you think it'd be the size of a pickup truck, but it's uh, yeah. it's in her hand. Yeah, this is why I think this is an exciting time to be a farmer because uh, this is a. I wish I had invented this when I when I talk to people. So they they sometimes think I'm the inventor. Uh, I wish I was because I'd be a very very wealthy person right now, but. Um, this company is called Oxford Nanopore, and they make the sequencer. And it's it's a what is called a third generation DNA sequencer. Um, in comparison to what was previously second generation, that is also sometimes called next generation. So those two are terms, the same terms for the same technology. And that technology is very powerful for some things, um, but what's different? I I you know we we don't need to get too deep into this, but um, this can produce long uh, sequences, longer sequences than second generation. So if you think of a, a genome as like a book um, that describes how to make that species and how to operate it, um, the more pages of that book that you can read together, it makes it easier to understand. And when we sequence yeah. DNA, the, the, if you just have the technology limited how long of those pages that we could see or even letters. So previous technologies, you could only see like 300 bases at a time. Um, and this technology just allows you to have much longer pieces of DNA. I, I'm not sure if I made that very clear. No, yeah, I, yeah, you are, okay, let me, all right. So is the thing's only limited to what has already been identified and known species correct i mean it can't tell you something that we don't know what's there yet well yes and no um you can only identify species that you're aware of so you know yeah. a kid would go that's a dog that's a horse that's a cow but if they didn't recognize it they just couldn't say what it was um now we still can get when you get these long pieces of dna from this machine um, what it means, you don't know what the species is, perhaps, but you can uh, look at some of the genes that are present and see what it can do. So in some ways, there's not, it, it gives you some more insight because if really we care what they're doing more than exactly the species per se, a lot of times. So having these longer reads gives you more understanding of what that microbial community is potentially doing. Um, and I mean, then there's still limitations there because we can only identify genes structures that we already know. <laughs> so there's things microbes can do that we have no idea about, um, but it's a big step forward, I think. And it's yeah. fast and it's inexpensive. So I'm really thinking this is gonna be something we're gonna have on the farm here in a couple of years. And certainly in, in smaller labs around and just cheaper and faster. Yeah, it's it's extremely interesting. Um, and Lude Myla's on tonight. Hey, Lude Myla, how you doing this evening? Uh, I'm not quite sure what she's trying to say here. Probably you do, Laura. This is is that minion or mini 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 ion? Is that I'm not sure what she's trying uh, to say. Yeah, it's a min ion. This is this the word? I don't yeah. know if that it's come up backwards on the TV. Um, so yes, this is a min ion. They have different sizes of sequencers. Um, this is one of their smaller ones, although I think they are trying to make an even smaller one. I'm not, 
uh, but they make bigger ones too. But yes, this is a min ion. Yeah, I think what Lude Miler is trying to say here is, um, uh, like in the movie Despicable Me, these are these are minions. They're cute but expensive to run, <laughs> and limited in their function. I think is what she's trying to say. Um, well, this so this machine, um, uh, this machine costs a thousand dollars. So. Um, that's a lot of money, but it's not actually a lot of money for a DNA sequencer because um, they used to cost the the other ones. The older models will be like fifty to a hundred thousand. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm just bringing forward what I think is a really valuable tool for farmers. Yeah. And I I see a lot of value in this. Um, it, it's not the new panacea. Like it's not going to suddenly changed everything in the world, but I think it's very powerful. And um, everything has limitations, but. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Bringing value. Yeah, so so do you think, do you think that we could, um, you know, this technology maybe, you know, there's always gonna be improvements coming, but right. you, you, you probably see this in a farmer's hands someday soon. Um, can we then, um, you know, have your bioreactor running on your farm your, or, or a compost, uh, uh, whatever you've got happening? We then can take a sample, take it to the sequencer, and then it tells us what. Right. So it would tell. So you, there's things that, that you have to do. You have to get the DNA out of the species that you're trying to sequence, and then you have to prepare it in a way that goes on the machine. Now, before, right now, those are semi-automated processes, but it's still complicated to do that. Um, we'll have to have some automation that, that comes out and, and there's a lot of work on that to make this like a plug and play kind of system. This is, this is by no means like your iPhone, um, but I don't see that as super far away. And so, yeah, so you would take, let's just say that's happened. And so you take the sequencer because it's on your farm, it's a lot easier to use and, and test things quickly. And so you would see what microbes were in that compost. And you might be trying to make a compost that's tuned for your crop. And so this could help say, is that working? Um, I do on my farm, a lot of extracts from vermicompost, but I'm not really sure how, what species actually survive that extraction process. What's really in my liquid that I have? And then sometimes I add nutrients and I grow those microbes and I spray that on my vines. I'm not always, I don't know what kind of um, species might be favored in that growing process. And so those yeah. are the kind of things you could sequence that and see, see what's in there and see if there are things you want or things you don't want. Um, so, so we can, you can, you can grow things then that we don't necessarily, uh, want or or could be antagonistic to the community let's say well i mean it, there's there's thousands and thousands of species of microbes in any piece of soil or in any um extract there's there um that's what we have to see we've been applying them and we know that in general these things really are helpful when we put them out uh, and we might have things that are particularly helpful and we want to have more of them in our sprays or in our extracts. So yeah. you can screen, you could screen for bad guys, but again, you can also screen by having a lot of diversity in this 
mixture of my microbial diversity. Yeah. yeah um, so. Let's see, Benjamin Crandall's got a comment here, research that, uh, that questions the conventional wisdom that brassicas don't associate with mycorrhizal fungi, and he's given a, a link there. So again, uh, there's, there's conversations for both sides of everything. Uh, check well, out. Sure. And I'm happy to learn more. I mean, maybe oh, brassicas, yeah. maybe brassicas, brassicas do need a lot of fungal species. That's, that would be great, great to learn about. Yeah. And, and again, that's why we do this live so we can get the interaction. Benjamin, right. thank you. Thank you very much for that. There's a link there. Um, Lude Milas is on, she's on almost every week also. Um, uh, she's a PhD as well. So got a, got a lot of wonderful minds on here this evening. Um, so now let's, let's now take, you know, I, I love this D I love this idea, this DNA sequencing idea, because I think it's, again, we need to understand and what I really like here and what I've been trying kind of playing around with right now, Laura is we're going out to fields and we're taking a soil sample and then we send it to a lab and they tell us what biology is in that soil, okay? Then we go to a part of the farm that I, I talked to my dad. Luck, luckily, he's still alive. I can still have conversations with him. Hey, dad, take me to a part of the farm that's never, that you could ever remember that's ever had any fertilizer put on it. You know, you've never tilled it. So we go there, and I'm going to call that inherent soil. And then we take a sample of that, and we compare the, the two essays and see, see what's lacking or, or not lacking. And then we can, and now to me, this is what I think is extremely important for context now, because this is for your farm and your system. And then we grow the biology that fills those holes or that void. Uh, and this, this DNA sequencer, I would think, would extremely speed this process up. I, I think so. I mean, it's the only way we can really start to crack that nut, um, but it is a complex system. So it's going to take some time to really understand that. And which of those species are the key species or are there key species? Is it really just the diversity we're looking for? Um, I think we'll find both. I think you have to support the diversity. And this sequencer can show you if, if you're able to get that in your fields um, and then add potentially some key species. But I, yeah, this is this is going to open up a whole different way to look at things or, or give us access to information we had no idea. To me, it's just super mind eye opening to to know that there's six thousand species in that little tiny piece of soil that I just picked up. I yeah. mean, these are you know it changes the way you think about what's under your feet. It's it makes it a lot more real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got, um, uh, Simeon's on. Simeon, how you doing this evening? Another, another follower. He's, uh, uh, young man, uh, works for, uh, Hiwasi products, which happens to be the extractor that, that we, we have on our farm. Uh, they're yes. putting, uh, a kit together and I guess, Lude Milo, I guess you, you've, you've got the, the name going. So he's called the featuring the minion and all other equipment needed for a, the uh, farm DNA sequencing. And he'll keep us updated. So, so I'm actually working all, with Simeon. We, we're collaborating. Yeah. Um, so 
that yes, that's what we want to do is bring bring these things together so that they can be very uh, commonplace and very practical. But let me let me ask you. Okay, see, I I I don't have. I don't have the kind of mind that you've got. So oh <laughs> I got to attack this from a different angle. So let me, let me just go a different way here. If there's technology out there that if you, if you, if you took a, 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 a sprayer into a field that was going to apply nitrogen to a field and it has to do a test pass so that it can read, I think it's reading the chlorophyll in the field. And then it, it, it then takes AI into account here and it, then it can adjust and make rates based on what it saw on that that test wow. pass. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I understand what you're saying. I I did. I'm I'm not familiar with that specific technology, but okay. I believe okay. you, and I think I understand how it's working. But where I'm getting at here is, don't we need to have? And maybe this is already there. Don't we need to have that that database that already is is just is, is um is has got in there what each the species that we know today this is what it looks like this is the dna boom that is abc and then right. you you load this into the sequencer and then that's already in there is that how this is going to work well yes so the the databases are not yeah the database like there's a national database of all the data that the united states and every other country has published and it goes into a giant database um, at, at NCBI, the National Center, uh, where all this information, and that's where it's stored in these big computers. And when the data comes off of this machine that has those sequences, it compares it to those. Okay. Known. So it's a giant database. It, it's okay. not like physically in the sequencer, but that's part of the bioinformatic analysis is when you get these things. Now, now what you'll find is um, usually like 30 to 40% of the, the reads that'll come off here aren't identified because they're coming from species that aren't in our databases. Uh, but there's no doubt those databases are just gonna be growing really fast. They have been, and they're gonna continue to grow really fast so that we'll be closing in on how many, you know, reducing the number of unknowns. But, you know, I've heard estimates of one to 5% are known. Uh, I don't know how you, make an estimate of how much you don't know but we're again very much at the beginning of this story yeah yeah, yeah. And, and getting all the data collected over time is going to really improve our knowledge rapidly yeah no i i get it i'm just trying to make sure that i understand and all the audience understands here um right. ed bourgeois on ed's on every week ed how you doing uh ed wants to know if this testing could this testing connect to further understand Dr. James White's rhizophagy bacteria discoveries? Um, uh, and 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 I think it appears that Mr. White is using more sophisticated sequencers in his research, so he must be already doing doing some of this already. Right, I'm sure. He, I'm sure he is. His research is incredible and and amazing. Um, I've always. I've learned about that with great interest. I'm sure he's using this. I mean, researchers have access to this. Um, what I'm talking about is trying to bring this to the field. Yeah. Um, but but I'm not I'm not the inventor of the concept of sequencing or or doing so. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying I think we've reached a point in the technology development where this is now getting to be. A, we can bring it out and start yeah. really applying it. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you're discussing this because this is important for the future. We just got to keep making these tools available for the, the folks that are trying to do this. I mean, and it doesn't even have to be a regenerative farmer. I mean, this could work for, right. for anyone. I mean, I've always said, I don't know, but I've always had the opinion that the folks who are tilling the soil and using copious amounts of fertilizer and chemistry, they're the ones who need more biology than anybody because there they're probably is very limited biology in their, in their systems. So yeah, I actually would, think it would be very useful to show that to sequence those fields and so there's it, it's hard to, to think about things that you can't see and touch and taste uh, i just mm -hmm. think this makes this a lot more tangible and helps yeah. us to kind of demonstrate what's all out there yeah I, I totally agree totally agree well folks if there's any questions out there please please bring them to the to the group here um it's been great conversation back and forth so far um so what uh, what's what's in the what's in the future here of of, uh, of the farm and yeah. obviously you've got the the vineyard but uh, have you got other uh, other aspirations here as well? Well, actually, I do. At the farm, we're starting a center for regenerative ag, ah. and we want it's um, we have a building. We can hold conferences. We have some classrooms. What we want to do is kind of become a nucleus for regenerative farming. Um, because I found, you know, I went to that conference, um, the Regen Ag, or Regen Organic Conference, um, mm -hmm. and it was so exciting to be in the room with a bunch of regenerative farmers who were trying all kinds of different things and were really sharing. That seems, that's the thing I love about regenerative farming. It's a very open community because we, we need to know so much from each other about how to get these things to work. And uh, so we want to form that um, at the Center for Regenerative Ag and, and try to help promote this whole movement of giving farmers support. I, I'm not coming from a farmer background. Um, I'm actually a scientist trying to become a farmer. Um, yeah. But everything I hear from regenerative farmers, and I, am, I have seen this, and I've, I've had people come to our farm and say, that's nuts. You're not going to grow grapes in that way. Like, that's just not going to work. Um, and I know that's very discouraging for me. And um, so creating this community is really important. So that's something yeah. that we're working on there and really wanting to expand, you know, mentioned um, working with Simeon to try to make access to this and working on the computational, improving the computational analysis of coming out of here so that we make the results useful for farmers. I mean, it's not helpful to a farmer to just have a bunch of esoteric data. They they need to, it needs to be actionable. So we need to figure out right. how to process it, how to present it in ways that are actionable and what's important. I'm sure that's going to take AI and other things to interpret this really complex community and how to optimize it in our fields. So there's, you know, I, I see no end to um, interesting and fascinating work and sharing right. with each other at a, you know about our experiences yeah and and this this facility is again tell us where you're at again um so we're it's at union grove farm vineyard in chapel hill north carolina and chapel it's called hill. the center for regenerative ag uh, we have a website um ugf uh, dot com 
I believe I should know that. Uh, but if you type in Union Grove Farm, uh, you'll find that in North Carolina. There's there's also a wedding venue there, so you'll have to click on the vineyard part to get okay. more about the farming part of it. But uh, you're at the right place. Okay, Rachel, if you if you don't mind, could you type? Maybe you did already. Could you type that in there? UGF.com is the website. Let me. Um, if that's correct. You know what? I know this is kind of embarrassing, but. That's okay. We want I to get want, it right. I want to make sure I get that right. That's, that's important. That's okay. Um, well, she, well, well, Laura's looking that up. I've got to, I want to go a different, a different direction here on this DNA sequencing because this, uh, what people are always trying to associate with regenerative and rightfully so is nutrient density in your food. And I'm again, making an assumption here. Uh, first of all, do you have the, do you have the, the website, Laura? Not quite yet. I'll, I got a little stuck here on my page. I'll, I'll have it here in just a second. Yeah, that's fine, but. Um, yes, there we go. Okay, here, I'll put it on the, can I just stick it in the chat? Yeah, just make sure it goes out to everyone. Okay, is it the chat here? There we go, somebody put it up for me, thank you. Uniongrovefarm.com, thank you, uh, Claudia, thank you very much. So, so Laura, let's let's go back to, this DNA sequencing with nutrient density. So are we going to be able to prove that, that these uh, vegetables, the produce, the food, the, the corn, whatever, whatever the, the crop is, are we going to be able to run it through this, this machine of yours and compare with, see, that's the next thing. I mean, what should the nutrient density of an apple be? So, I mean, there's all kinds of, of uh, uh, roadblocks you can come to, but aside from that, can you get the nutrient density of a product from this uh, DNA sequencer? No. No. It won't give you that. What you could do is raise, um, I, I think you could do is raise crops um, in two different systems, same crop, and correlate, you know, I have all these microbes in the soil in this system, and I don't have as many microbes in this system and then measure the nutrient density of whatever that is and try to show that the cause of the increased nutrient density is coming from those microbes. You'd have to okay. do something like that, but it's no, it yeah. doesn't do anything to tell you what the nutrient density of something is. Okay, okay. I didn't know if we could um, uh, be able to figure out and you you answered that perfectly. That's exactly what I was talking about. You get you got to compare. You got to start with, yeah. So um, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating to me that we're going to be able to have something like this in the field to look at what's below our feet. I mean, I've often said you take a take a teaspoon and go out into a, a healthy field, and you've got more living species in that teaspoon than there is um people on the planet so i mean it's just it's just nuts i i know i nature is so beyond us you know we however complicated we think it is it's more complicated 
and it's more <laughs> amazing. I, I mean, there's just layers upon layers of how um, microbes interact with one another in a community and how they interact with um, the plant. You know, my Dr. White's work has, you know, demonstrated completely new things we never thought about microbes being pulled into and pushed. You know, I mean, nature's doing things so far beyond our understanding. So it's, yeah. it's exciting. It's just a very exciting time to be a farmer because we're going to see and understand things and no idea about. Right. Right. Well, if, let's see. What's, uh, what's Lee Myla wanted to say oh, here? There's someone with Japanese beetle control. I want to want to talk to them. Uh, Lou Myla wants to talk about the Japanese beetle control. If you are all open to it, oh, you better believe it. Uh, Lou Myla, would you please raise your hand so that Rachel can find you and she will unmute you, please? Lou Myla, are you there? I see her on the screen with her hand up now. Hey, Rachel. I don't think I can do it. Uh, um, I gave her permission. Um, it says she unmuted herself. Hmm. Ludmila, can you hear us? Well. Hopefully she can get get something figured out. Um, yeah, this is why I like uh, I like doing this live. I know this is hard for. I mean, I'm sitting in a hotel room. Um, it's hard, but uh, if if we have a fixed time every week and um, um, live, then you can get to these kind of problem solving situations. Um, it's a bummer, Lou Mila. We cannot hear you if you are speaking. I guess while we're yeah while we're waiting for her, I'll just also mention you know these the microbes are going to be really insightful as they come, but they're that data's got to be integrated with the other information. There's still a lot of things you know the soil structure is important, the environment, the context, all the things, um, and having that community around the crops are all it's still those. I'm not trying to suggest that the microbes are everything but they are in the context of all the other things. So those things oh, yeah. will take, again, it's an immensely complex system, this farming. Um, and all of that will have to be kind of understood over time. Right, right. Well, darn, I was hoping, uh, Ludmila, can you- She's uh, coming back. Okay, now you're trying, it, it, it went unmuted for just a moment there, Ludmila, now it's back to muted again. And there you go. Now, can you hear can me? You, yes. Yes, yes we can great. now. Uh, so, hi, uh, my name is Ludmila. I'm originally from Ukraine and I'm an expat. Um, I never controlled Japanese beetle in vineyards. However, um, this January, uh, we started a little Facebook group called Farm Made by Efforts. Um, it was a suggestion by uh, Rick's good friend, uh, Kyle Schnell. He basically left us no option but to do it and there are brilliant people in the group um, who have been practic practicing korean natural farming and jadam for a long time um, and um, i was able to pick up their brain 
uh, while you were talking and from Korea natural farming, um, the advice is to use indigenous pest management organisms. It's basically uh, um, entomopathogenic fungi that you collect the same way you collect IMOs, um, uh, indigenous microorganisms, but instead of just using undercooked white rice, it uses um, chitin that would attract um, entomopathogenic fungi, basically the food, uh, food for them. Uh, basically um, crickets or whatever, insects, mealworms, whatever insects you can buy. Um, it's called IPMO. And from the Jadam tradition, um, and the, um, the Korean national natural farming solution was offered by Kobe Gai. And he talks about Korean natural farming a lot. Now he's in Ireland teacher, teaching classes on that. Um, he's, he's a genius when it comes to Korean natural farming. With Jadam, uh, Matthew Kyle is our Jadam uh, expert, and he's suggesting um, Jadam's JWA plus JHS plus JS. I've never made them and JMS. Um, and yeah, that's from the from from Jadam side. Can you so hear can me? You yeah, can oh, you yeah. talk a little bit about how that's applied? I actually, it's interesting you say that. I was just talking to someone at the farmer's market here in Hillsboro um, who does uh, Korean natural farming. And we we're talking about potential control of Japanese beetle. So I'm not super familiar with this. So how does that, um, how is that applied? Is it a spray or? Uh, so the collection is solid. It's uh, IPMO one and then you bring it to, to liquid and then you can foliar apply it. Um, I suggest a consult with Kobe Gaia. I can uh, put you in touch with him or you can just look, it up, look him up. He speaks at many organic uh, farming conferences. He's well-known expert in Korean natural farming. So um, I've never done that. Um, so he, and he consults professionally. You can pick up his brain um, on that. And for Jadam, Matthew Kyle, he also consults professionally. So, I or, actually, you can, oh. or you can just put your um, question in the group. It's called Farm Made by Efforts on Facebook. And they will chime in and they will answer your question. Um, what, what's the last word? Farm made what? I didn't. Lude, hey, Lude Myler, can you type that in the chat, please? <laughs> okay. So, you know, I think that actually DNA sequencing will be a really interesting application for Korean natural farming because sometimes we go out, and I don't deeply understand this, but you go out and you find natural um, microbes that will kill insects and things. You could then sequence them and actually see that what the genome is and actually really start to get a deeper understanding of what you're yeah. finding. And I think that would be many, super interesting. A many, um Entomopathogenic fungi are sequenced already, and they are in the databases. Um, those sure. that are identified and studied um, are sequenced. Of what I am more interested in is the uh, metatranscriptomics aspect of it, because you can get a DNA of a dormant organism, right? So you will see, you will identify it, but what's the use if it's not active, right? The transcriptomics gives you what genes are active, what are expressed, what uh, what proteins or microRNA are being are being synthesized, what's actually uh, working in the field. So I'm a huge proponent of metatranscriptomics. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely insightful. Um, and it's maybe, sure. yeah, because my professional activity, um, I analyze um, epigenomics and metatranscriptomics um, um, data in the biomedical field. So for me, you know, I, I see a nail everywhere. So, yeah. Right. No, I definitely think that's going to be really valuable. It, it can be you know, with metagenomics in general, it's just hard to understand how to interpret the data. There's so much data and how do you, understanding what it's telling you. Um, there are many that are golden standard that people use uh, that we're supposed to use if we want to publish in peer reviewed journals or get um, uh, funding from NIH or uh, um, DOD or, uh, other funding institutions. So we have to stick to those. There's very little room to um, to innovation unless somebody published an algorithm and uh, it's uh, well received. You're you're pretty much like with single cell epigenomics and transcriptomics. You basically just have to use Surat. That's it. <laughs> Otherwise, good luck publishing or getting your uh, grant funded. Yeah. Well. Lumila, thank you. That's that was way over my head, but uh, but thank you so much for that. That's again, that's why I love doing this. Uh, thank you for coming on and speaking. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, anything else, Laura? We'd like to probably wrap this up here. Do you want to? You want to have any closing comments? Anything we we didn't touch on that we should? Um, I can't think of anything. I'll just say I have come in the last year and a half as I've really become a farmer and actually been out in the field and actually growing a crop, um, really grown to appreciate how difficult farming is. I never, I never had any idea. I, mm -hmm. I thought farming looked easy. You, you go out and you plant things and you just drink lemonade on the porch till it comes up and you, and you harvest it. Um, so I just have so much admiration for farmers and um, really gained a much, much deeper understanding and sense of what they're up against and what they do. And also how interesting and fascinating it is. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Lude Myla, if you're still there, would you type, please type in the chat there, that, that website, or I mean, that, that social media group that you were talking about. Um, I'm on my phone here and it's too cumbersome for me to do that. Uh, if you could get that typed in before we, uh, before we exit the, the show here and then it'll be in there. Um, I don't know if you're still on or not. Um, well, again, this has been great. Uh, Laura, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to join us here. I, I think it's uh, fascinating the work you're doing. Um, Thank you, folks, for the interaction this evening. This was great, um, uh, and good. And Laura, good luck with um, with those darn Japanese beetles. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. It's it's been a pleasure. I'm glad to get advice from folks. Yeah, yeah. And and I when when I get done with this, it's not going to help for the folks out there listening. But uh, Laura, I'll send you the. The group she was talking about as soon as okay, the, the, this is over because I, I can't do it on my phone when i'm trying to do this so okay that well everyone th 
thank you so much. Uh, there it is. There it is. Um, yeah, there, there's the face. There's the the face group. Or no, that's from Claudia. Is that the is that this is that the group we're talking about, Claudia? Okay. All right. There you go. Um, yep. The Biofertz. B I O F E R T Z. So that's what that's the last word, Laura. You were trying to understand. B I O F E R T Z. Biofertz. Okay. Everyone, thank you so much. Laura, thank you. Keep up the good work. Um, everyone, be safe. Have a great week. I hope you get some rain. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.